pick up right where we left off last week in Job 26. Job chapter 26. So we're going to take a look at our outline again here. Um, We have made it through the introduction of the book, um, where we saw a glimpse into the heavenly realms, uh, the heavenly places, um, where there's this meeting with God and his angels, and Satan comes, and God says, have you considered my servant Job, that he is blameless and upright? And uh, that's an important aspect of this book, that God himself points out that Job is blameless and upright. So whenever Job is defending himself throughout this book, he is correct in his uh, defense of himself. He is a man of integrity, uh, blameless and upright, fears God and shuns evil. That's how he's described, not just by himself, but by God himself. And so um, we have come through that. Do we have that? Uh, yeah. So then we have that first challenge, and God challenges Satan, and Satan uh, says to God, "He only loves you. He only loves you because of his great wealth. His life is great, so he loves what you gave him. He doesn't actually love you." And Satan's whole argument to God is, "No one would love you, God, just because of who you are. No one would just love you. They only love what you give them. They only love themselves, really, and so they." They feign worship you, God. It's not real. Um, and so God gives Satan a little bit of a leash and says, okay, you can take everything away from him, but don't hurt him. And so we have this terrible series of events. All at the same time, Job loses absolutely everything. All of his, his house, all of his uh, land, all of his cattle, and then worst of all, his children. He has 10 children who are all killed instantly. A house collapses on them. And, uh, but we have Job's incredible response at the end of that. Um, Job gets all the information from his servants who come to him and tell him, you've lost it all. And he falls and it says that he tears his robe and he worships. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so Job proves what God had said that he does, in fact, love and worship and adore God himself, regardless of what he has. So Satan is wrong. And so then we have the second challenge. Um, And you can just leave that up there, Josh. Um, We have the second challenge, which comes and Satan again says, well, it's only because you didn't let me touch him. You know, he... A man will give up everything he has as long as he's healthy and safe and comfortable. And so God gives him a little more leash. says, okay... You can't kill him, but you can, you can attack his body now. So then Job ends up with terrible disease. He's covered in boils from head to toe. Um, it's described as worms are inside of the boils. Um, he is in just the most horrid condition that any human could be. And again, he responds. Um, at, at one point, his wife comes to him and says, do you still hold to your integrity? Curse God and die. She's saying, just give it up. This isn't worth this type of agony. And Job responds and says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? And shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And so again, Job proves that he does in fact love and worship and adore God and put God above even his own life. Um, And then we move into a week of mourning. 
um, Job goes out to the ash heap, which would be, in our modern terms, like the city dump. Outside of a, a city dwelling, there would be a constant pile where they would be burning any kind of excess, burning things off. And so there would be an ash heap continually from all the burning. And so that's where he is. He's outside the city, sitting in the ashes, basically in the city dump, mourning. And he has three friends, and they're Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And those friends come, they decide to meet together and decide they're going to come and comfort Job in his misery. And they come, they start off right, um, they see him and they spend an entire week not talking and just mourning with him. They put ashes on their own heads and tear their own robes and they are silent and, and mourn with Job over his loss and over his affliction. But then Job begins uh, his first lament. And so Job cries out. Um, and he wants his life to end. He doesn't want to be facing what he's facing anymore. And he calls out to God that God would just end his life, just take his life from him. And he, he continually asked various versions of the question, why was I even born? Why would I be born if this was going to happen to me? What is the point? Um, and so he's in this deep cry towards God. Well, his friends who started off right, and actually have a decent theology. Their understanding of who God is and what he's like and how the world works is pretty good. Um, but the problem is, and I've fallen into this, we all can if, if we're not careful, they think they need to defend God because of Job's complaint. You know, because of his lament, God did this to me, this is terrible, and I shouldn't be going through this. They think they're going to defend God from Job, and in so doing, they turn on him. And so these friends turn out not to be good friends. And so we've been in the bulk of the text for many chapters now of this argument. And so it comes in rounds. So you have Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, those three. And it's uh, Eliphaz, then Job. Bildad, then Job. Zophar, then Job. And that's how it was for the first, uh, first round. And then the second round, we had Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, and then Zophar's done. He didn't want to chime in anymore in the second round. And then we got to the third round, and we had Eliphaz for the last time, and then Bildad had a really short one. And that's where we ended in chapter 25 last time, was the end of round two. Bildad finished his short little excerpt. He didn't have much else to say, and he really wasn't much help. And so now we are finishing round three. We are going to get to Job's conclusion, and that's where we are in 26 today uh, as we jump into the text uh, so here we are in 26, Job is responding to Bildad, and then he's going to continue this discourse about wisdom and kind of give a final summary uh, defending himself. And so that's what we're going to read through today, 26 through 31. So here we are. Let's jump right in. Chapter 26, verse 1. But Job answered and said, how have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? And, have, and how have you declared sound advice to many? To whom have you uttered words and whose spirit came from you? And so a summary of, of these first few verses is Job basically pointing out that Bildad, you're an elder in your community, which means that people listen to you, you give advice, you may even serve as judge from time to time. And he's saying, Bildad, you're an old man. And I wonder how many people you have failed to counsel well over your many years. 
He's saying, how have you even made it this far? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? How have you counseled one who has no wisdom? He's shocked. Your advice is so terrible, Bildad. I don't know how you got this far, is what he's saying to him. Verse 5, the dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Sheol is naked before him, and destruction has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. That's an incredible description there. And I know this is poetic language, so we don't take poetry quite as literally as we do narrative or discourse. But just that picture alone, he's talking about God hanging the earth on nothing. And in Job's day, there were beliefs about earth being flat or being fixed on the back of an elephant or on the back of a turtle. Um, Those were the prevailing views in those days. And so we see this kind of insight from someone who is wise and knows about God that even about the earth, he makes that kind of a statement, that the earth hangs on nothing. And so it would be millennia before we realize that the earth is suspended in space and being held in its position by a force that we can't see or control or do anything about. So, um, yeah, that's an incredible statement there. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. I love this picture here. Um, one of my favorite things to do whenever I go to the coast at any, any time is I like to go out on a beach <clears throat> and start to get in the water and get to the point where I have no land, no sand, nothing in my peripheral vision so that all I see is water. And sometimes you have to go out a little further to get there and just stare and try to imagine where the next piece of land might be. If you're standing in the Gulf of Mexico, you know, down in Corpus, it's not anywhere close and you can't see it. But just trying to get my eyes to focus and see how far I can see and try to imagine how far it is and it's just impossible. And uh, that's kind of what Job is describing here. You know, this area, the Mediterranean Sea would be the closest to them. Maybe he's been there. But that's what you see whenever you stare out over the ocean. And he's talking about what God has done. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. So related to the sun rising and setting. So from his perspective, if you're staring out of the Mediterranean, they would see sunsets because that would be to their west, right? And the sun would disappear right behind the face of the water, right? where the top of the water is. And when you look out like that, and it's clear, you can see it kind of curves away. You can kind of see that curve in the distance. And so Job is talking about this profound thing he can't actually understand. He sees it, he's looking at it, and he realizes God made that, this massive thing. And the other thing I love about that is that, you know, whenever I go and I do that, the other thing that's profound about God's greatness is just not just the vastness of how much water there is, but I'm, I'm a fairly big guy and I'm heavy and I can stand in the water, you know, I can, I can carry myself well. In, in areas like Corpus, the waves aren't even hard. I mean, they're not even big. But you stand out there, if I stand out there waist deep, chest deep in the water, I'm a leaf, you know, and that's just pretty calm ocean water. You know, you think about the vastness of what God is like. Um, 
and just his incredible power. And so that's one of the things I just love about being there is just realizing how small I am. Um, it's good to be humbled by the incredible greatness of God. Um, so that's what he's describing there in verse 10. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he breaks up the storm. By his spirit, he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? So verse 14, in my commentary that I have, I went ahead and put it on put it in a slide for you because I just wanted to see how wanted you to see how this commentator rephrased it. I thought this was really well, really well put. So in verse 14, it says, Job asserts that if we truly considered God's great power, we would know that what we observe of creation represents the mere edges of his garment, just his whisper. What would happen to us if ever he were to thunder? And I just loved how they they re-put this verse 14 that Job said. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Um, another, you know, today my title, which I didn't talk about before, is Validity Without Humility. And so we're going to talk a little bit about how Job actually goes too far in his defense, where he's right, he's, he's valid, but he's no longer humble. And he oversteps. And uh, I, I can be guilty of that. It, pride is something that can sneak up on you without you realizing it. And so one of the things that I think is uh, just an illustration that's come to mind in my life at different times is uh, if I were to take, for instance, say you, you, were, you lived in, Lake, in Michigan. And Lake Michigan, one of the Great Lakes, is an enormous lake. Let's say you're a fisherman or a diver. And you go out on that water all the time. You know every inch of that lake. You know about all the wildlife that are in it. You've swam to its depths. You know what the bottom's like. You know what lives down there. You can learn everything there is to know about Lake Michigan and, and all of its things. And it's this vast amount of water, this incredible lake. And then someone could say, well, what do you know about the Pacific? And it just dwarfs Lake Michigan at that point. And the vastness of the knowledge of God and his greatness and what he's like is actually more like if I set up a kiddie pool in my backyard. That's how much I know. And how much there is to know about God is the vast Pacific Oceans whose depth we can't even get to um, in many places. So uh, that's just a good reminder for me whenever I feel like, yeah, I really know my Bible and I'm really, you know, I know a lot about God and my, you know, no, I don't. It's, it's good to be humble to realize that um, I know very little and I, I can just look forward with hope to a future where we see him face to face and really get an incredible picture of his vast greatness. So um, let's move on. Chapter 27, verse 1. Moreover, Job continued his discourse and said, as God lives, who has taken away my, my justice, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. 
Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. So we'll stop here. Job is asserting here at the beginning, I'm innocent. This is his final, he's going to go through this discourse and defend himself. I am innocent. And we know that it's true, as we talked about before, God says that he's innocent. Um, So it is true, but be careful, Job. He's suggesting that God is unjust. In verse 2, as God lives, so this is uh, how they would take an oath, kind of make a swear. Um, As God lives, if God lives, and this is not true, may this curse come upon me. That was kind of the pattern of the ancient world, of how they would make an oath. If this, as God lives, if this is not true, may this curse come upon me. And that's asserting, this is true. That's what I'm saying. And if I'm lying may this bad thing happen to me, right? So that's kind of the framework of what he's saying here. But he describes God as one who has taken away my justice. Careful, Job. The one who has made my soul bitter. Um, yeah, so he's, he's overstepping a little bit. And this is, this is the, what we're talking about here. He's right. He's, his argument is valid. He is innocent. God has claimed him innocent. But he's not being humble anymore. He's being too proud and accusing God of things that aren't true. And so God is going to address him. And I'm very much looking forward to those chapters when God finally speaks from the cloud because he is going to put Job in his place and places, and Job is going to respond with humility. And at this point, he hasn't gotten there yet. Um, but I'm really looking forward to that in a few weeks. So moving on. Um, verse 6, My righteousness I hold fast, and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. 7 through 12, this is a a burn on his friends. (laughs) May my enemy be like the wicked, and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he may gain much, if God takes away his life? Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with complete nonsense? So there Job is really cutting at his friends who haven't been kind to him, haven't spoken wisely. Uh, Verse 13 uh, through 23, we see here that um, as we read through it, you'll see it sounds a whole lot like his friends how they describe the wicked. Um, and so it's some think that this is him being sarcastic and continuing to sort of cut down his friends and make fun of them. Uh, I don't know for sure that that's what he's doing, but it would appear so because it sounds like uh, he's sort of mocking them because he sounds a whole lot like them for these next several verses. So 13, this is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword, and his offspring shall be satisfied with bread. Those who survive him shall be buried in death, and their widows shall not weep. Though he heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth, like a booth which a watchman makes. Um, that's a way of describing it as being very secure and insulated, being very safe, 
um, like a moth's cocoon or like a watchman's tower. Uh, The rich man will lie down, but not be gathered up. He opens his eyes, and he is no more. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away, and he is gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls against him and does not spare. He flees desperately from its power. Men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. Uh, Just talking about, again, they talked a lot about the wicked last time. He's continuing to talk about the wicked here uh, and describing them uh, as he finishes up this chapter. And so uh, what we see here is Job is saying, I know this is true about the wicked, but like we talked about last time, it's about God's timing. So we talked about last week. It's all about God's timing. Yes, these things happen to the wicked because God is just, and God doesn't allow the wicked to go unpunished. Um, And so our wickedness, for example, can either be taken by Christ because you put your trust in him that he is the one who did that for you, or you can keep it yourself if that's what you choose to do and not believe in Christ. And so, but no matter what, God pours out justice upon the wicked. Um, But it's a matter of timing. It doesn't happen as speedily and as quickly uh, as many think that it does. So here we are in chapter 28. And this is a really, really great, a really beautiful uh, chapter about wisdom. And so we're going to kind of see it in three different sections here. So he's going to describe the depths of what man is capable of first in verses 1 through 11. And then what man is incapable of in 12 through 19. And then we're going to see what God knows in 20 through 28. So uh, this is a really, really great chapter. Uh, A lot of this sounds a whole lot like the book of Proverbs and um, other wisdom books, the Psalms and things like that as well. So uh, let's, let's jump in here. Chapter 28. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore in the darkness and the shadow of death. He breaks open a shaft away from people in places forgotten by feet. They hang far away from men in places forgotten by feet. I think that's really uh, a really cool picture, a poetic picture, a place forgotten by feet. They dig down in mines where no one would otherwise walk. Uh, As for the earth from it comes bread but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the source of sapphires, and it contains gold dust. That path no bird knows, nor has the falcon's eye seen it. The proud lions have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. So here Job is describing kind of a comparison between humans and animals. That We are definitely greater than the animals. We can do things they could never do. We can dig down. We can do this kind of work. We can form things with iron ore, and we can do all of these incredible things. Just talking about the limits that man can go to, the animals can't even get close to. Uh, Verse 9, he puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams from trickling. What is hidden, he brings forth to light. So this is the pinnacle of man's strength and power and ability, the things that we are able to do in the earth, such as mining. Um, But now we're going to see what man is incapable of in verse 12. But where can wisdom be found? 
And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of offer, in precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Wisdom is not something that no matter how hard we try, we can't grab hold of it. We can't control it. We can't be the ones who go after it and and claim it as ours. You can't buy it. It's not something that you can go to a store and pick up. Um, Wisdom is something that God has that man cannot go after unless we seek him to give it to us. So verse 20, from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, we have heard a report about it with our ears. God understands its way. And he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, when he saw wisdom and declared it, he prepared it indeed, he searched it out. And to man, he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. That sounds a whole lot like Proverbs. Proverbs, uh, in the, in, very early on in the book, says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Um, yeah, just a beautiful chapter in here. Probably some, of, uh, some more of the wisest statements that Job makes and truest statements about who God is and what he's like. Uh, I just love these descriptions of God's vast greatness. Um, that he established the weight for the wind and apportioned the waters by measure. This is just beautiful language. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it indeed, he searched it out. And to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Um, Yeah, not much to add to that. It's just a beautiful passage. So true. Chapter 29. Job further continued his discourse and said, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness, just as I was in the days of my prime, when the friendly counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were around me, when my steps were bathed with cream, and the rock poured out rivers of oil for me. So Job is reminiscing about the good old days before all this occurred to him. And I can't imagine being able to say when my children were around me as a father who had just lost all of his children in a terrible tragedy. Um, Early on, we talked about with Job's lament that as we read through this, let's try to imagine his voice. I'm not going to act it out for you, but just try to imagine his voice in this. This is someone who's been through um, 
the most intense grief uh, that I, I can't even imagine. Um, but here he is. He's reminiscing of the good old days in a way. And now we're going to see... Uh, we're going to see a compare and contrast that's going to happen over the next two chapters. The rest of 29, we're going to talk about all the, the good old days whenever Job was respected, and he's going to talk about how well he was treated and his status in the, in the community and all of that. And then chapter 30 is going to contrast all of that to talk about where he is now. And this is just going to give us that overall picture that Job is trying to draw of himself as he's uh, laying down his argument, his defense, of where he's at. So here we are, 29 verse 7, and this is going to be a description of what it was like before this calamity. When I went out to the gate by the city, when I took my seat in the open square, the young men saw me and hid, and the aged arose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and put their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, then it blessed me, and when the eye saw, then it approved me. Because I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper, the blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind, and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the case that I did not know, I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. It's believed by some that Job, because of his status in the community, you know, it described him early on in the first chapter as the greatest in the land of Edom, um, that he could have been a king. Um, but because there's so much uh, law language or court type language in the book that perhaps he was a judge. He actually served as judge. And so these descriptions really show that. But he was highly respected in that role as well. Uh, it talks about even princes refrained from talking and put their hands over their mouth whenever he arrived and whenever he spoke. This was a man who at one point in time was so well respected and esteemed above seemingly all others. Uh, verse 18 then I said, I shall die in my nest and multiply my days as the sand. My root is spread out to the waters, and the dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is fresh within me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. Men listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel. After my words did not speak again, or after my words they did not speak again, and my speech settled on them as dew. It's a way of saying it was refreshing and rejuvenating to them whenever he spoke. They waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouth wide as for the spring rain. If I mocked at them, they did not believe it, and the light of my countenance they did not cast down. I chose the way for them and sat as chief, so I dwelt as a king in the army, as one who comforts mourners. And so this is what we're about to contrast greatly in chapter 30. And here's the big but now that we're going to see. But now they mock at me, men younger than I. So we still have, you know, I was taught as a kid, I think people still hold to, like, respect your elders, that the younger respect the older. Um, it's not as well held to, I've noticed, maybe lately. But... Uh, it's still there. We still, 
But certainly in a culture this time, you know, several millennial, millennia ago, that was a very, you know, serious part of their culture. And they held strictly to that, that young men respect older men. And so whenever Job's pointing this out, that younger men mock him, it is, that is the lowest of the low. And that's what we're going to see. Job is going to describe, I am, to say I'm at the lowest point is an understatement. I'm buried deep down under the ground low. And so that's what he's, he's going to describe in this passage here. Uh, men younger than I, whose fathers I disdain to put with the dogs of my flock. So even the dogs that are out there, you know, as guard dogs for the sheep, I wouldn't even trust these guys to take care of the dogs, much less the sheep. And that's their fathers. So these young men of these men I don't even respect, disrespect me. Um, Indeed, what profit is the strength of their hands to me? Their vigor has perished. They are gaunt from want and famine, fleeing late to the wilderness, desolate and waste, who pluck mallow by the bushes and broom tree roots for their food. They were driven out from among men. They shouted at them as at a thief, as at a thief. They had to live in the clefts of the valleys and caves of the earth and the rocks. Among the bushes they brayed, so describing them like behaving as animals even, to say that they brayed which is what a donkey does. He's saying they even behaved like animals. Uh, Among the bushes they brayed, under the nettles they nestled. They were sons of fools, yes, sons of vile men. They were scourged from the land. And now I am their taunting song. Yes, I am their byword. They abhor me. They keep far from me. They do not hesitate to spit in my face because he has loosed my bowstring and afflicted me, they have cast off restraint before me. So in this verse 11, when he says, he has loosed my bowstring and afflicted me, um, it sounds like releasing to fire an arrow. Um, But it actually is to loose the bowstring from the bow and set it aside, as in, I'm of no use anymore. I'm not even in the picture. Um, God has loosed my bowstring, set me up on a shelf. I'm completely useless and forgotten, uh, is a way of saying that. They have cast off restraint before me. So uh, it's more than just they don't respect me, it's that they even disdain and mistreat me. Um, Another thing that this passage does uh, here, this 9 through 15, that we'll see is that it suggests that this whole discussion, and I hadn't thought about this before this study, Um, I kind of thought it was private. It was just Job and his three friends at the ash heap. But this paragraph kind of uh, relates. And then then some of the earlier ones, whenever Job was talking about people, him being a byword and people mocking him, that there may have been lots of passersby in this area or even a crowd forming as these aged men are arguing with one another. So this suggests that there actually were people there listening on, um, paying attention to what's going on, because... After this, after Job is finished, uh, the next time we're going to talk about a young man named Elihu who's going to speak. And so he was there, and his arguments, he's actually quoting the debates that were happening. So this young man must have been standing there listening to these debates. So there could be a crowd, an audience here. Um, 
Verse 12, at my right hand, the rabble arises. They push away my feet and they raise against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They have no helper. They come as broad breakers. Under the ruinous storm, they roll along. Terrors are turned upon me. They pursue my honor as the wind and my prosperity has passed like a cloud. And here we see Job's extreme anguish. 16, and now my soul is poured out because of my plight. The days of affliction take hold of me. My bones are pierced in me at night and my gnawing pains take no rest. By great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about as the collar of my coat. He has cast me into the mire and I have become like dust and ashes. Um, You know, Elihu and God are both going to point out to Job, as we talked today, that he wasn't humble in his defense, though he was right in his defense. He wasn't humble about it. And, uh, you know, I have to say, if I was in the same situation, we like to think that we would do great. We would do better and we'd get it right, but we don't. But it's still important for us to remember, you know, Job didn't have the New Testament teaching. This is way before that. Um, but we don't want to overuse it and put it in people's face who are going through grief, but the Romans 8.28, that God works all things for the good of those who love God. Passage, uh, that verse, is an important one for us to hang on to individually and to call to mind and to remember that because what is true even of Job, and we got to give him credit because this affliction is terrible, is that he should still, in humility, be able to say that God is just for doing this. He has a plan and a purpose in mind, and I accept whatever that is. And that's, that's unfair for me in this day where I live, how I am, and, and to be looking at this from so long ago and reading these words to judge him in that way. And so I do that very gently, um, very you know, cautiously. Um, but that is the truth of what... Elihu and God are going to say about him. And so even though it's a tremendous affliction that we can, we can barely fathom, we still should strive in our own living to trust Christ enough to know that whatever we face, whatever affliction we might face, that we can trust that it's for the good, God's version, which is the only version worth um, describing, God's version of what is best. And so we can trust him even in the worst of our griefs and our afflictions. And so that's Job's failing here, which I hate to just, you know, harp on him, but that's the truth of this passage. Uh, Verse 20, I cry out to you, speaking to God, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you regard me, but you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you oppose me. You lift me up to the wind and cause me to ride on it. You spoil my success, for I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. A little bit of arrogance there, Job. Verse 24, surely he would not stretch out his hand against a heap of ruins, if they cry out when he destroys it. Have I not wept for him who was in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? But when I looked for good, evil came to me, and when I waited for light, then came darkness. 
even further over the line here. He's saying, God, even I treated the poor better than you have treated me. Um, yeah, he's getting a little, little bit bold here. My heart is in turmoil and cannot rest. Days of affliction confront me. I go about mourning, but not in the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry out for help. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. So I didn't understand this when I read it. I was like, what is, what is that about? <clears throat> so what it's about is their sounds. Jackals and ostriches make horrible sounds when they're in distress. And so that's what he's comparing himself to, his, his moaning, his crying, his crying out to God in his sorrow that he is among jackals and ostriches in his lament. And so that's, that's what the description is about. That's what that means. My skin grows black and falls from me. My bones burn with fever. My harp is turned to mourning and my flute to the voice of those who weep. <clears throat> so again, this is just Job's uh, terrible lament over his affliction. So here in 31, he's giving, this is our last chapter today. Job is going to wrap up here, but he's going to give specific now because he's been accused by his friends this whole time of various things, that he's mistreated the poor and that he must have done this awful thing and that awful thing. And Elihu's going to cover that as well to say, hey, y'all accused Job of this stuff with no evidence, um, but we'll get to that later. But here Job is laying out clearly, these are the things I have not done. I am innocent. And so he points out a list of uh, sins here uh, that he is not guilty of. And what's uh, really neat about this passage, and I've got a few verses that are going to come up along the way as we go through this, is that this is before the time of Moses. So they, they probably had commands from God that had been passed down from you know Noah, uh, but they didn't have the law of Moses. And so even... In the New Testament, the way they describe Jesus on, in his Sermon on the Mount, and that's where most of these verses are going to come through from, is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and 6, um, is that when Jesus talks about, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and that not even the smallest little uh, tittle will be removed from the law, Jesus kind of shows in that Sermon on the Mount, like it's more than just outward physical action. In fact, your inability to follow the law goes so deep that it's, you know, he talks about murder. You shall not murder. Well, many of you follow that easily, you know. I don't think any of us struggle with that sin, right? But he says, even if you hate someone, hate your brother, then you're guilty of murder. So Jesus is talking about it going deeper. And so Job is actually going to talk about that a little bit, that even inwardly he, he has lived with integrity and with righteousness. So that's, I'm going to point these out as we go along. Um, so the first one is verse 1 through 4, and we're going to see how it relates to Matthew 5, 27 and 28. So 31, 1 through 4. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? That's an incredible insight from Job. Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? Again, that sovereignty. Job has this great 
understanding of the sovereignty of God, that God sees and knows all things. And so even in his mind, his eyes, which no one could ever, you know, easily catch him in, he's saying, even there, I haven't. And so uh, here in Matthew 5, 27 on the screen, 5, 27, 28, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Here's where Jesus is taking the law and going even deeper into your heart and your mind. And so verse 5 through 8 continues with that same idea from Matthew. Um, Lost my place. Verse 5, if I have walked with falsehood or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way, or my heart walked after my eyes, or if any spot adheres to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. Yes, let my harvest be rooted out. So here we have that um, oath pattern that we're talking about. As God lives, this is true. If it isn't, may this curse happen to me. So that's kind of the pattern that Job keeps following to um, attest for his integrity and his innocence. So here, uh, the comparison of uh, 5 through 8, I've not lied or cheated, Matthew five thirty seven. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. So the command that Jesus points out before this passage is uh, not to swear falsely. That's the command. Don't swear falsely. Jesus goes further. He says, don't even swear. Don't swear by anything. It's not a matter about whether you're being honest or not. Don't even swear. He says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus takes the law and goes even further, deeper into our hearts and minds. Point that out. And Job is saying, I haven't done this. I haven't lied. I haven't cheated. Uh, So here's verse 9 through 12. So sorry, I I jumped ahead. So verses 1 through 4, verses 9 through 12 here uh, echo that same passage of Matthew 5.27 to commit adultery, uh, not to commit adultery, even in the mind and heart. So verse 9. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down over her. It's like saying, may my wife even become a concubine of someone else and a servant if I have done this. For that would be wickedness. Yes, it would be iniquity deserving of judgment. If even my heart was enticed, That would be iniquity deserving of judgment. For that would be a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. Uh, Verse 13 through 15. If I have despised the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? Um, Job is saying, I've been fair and generous with my servants. That's Job's claim there. Verse 16 through 23. I have kept the poor from their... Oh, I'm sorry. If I have kept the poor from their desire or caused the eyes of the widow to fail or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat of it, but from my youth I reared him as a father and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me and if he has not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, 
If I have raised my hand against the fatherless when I saw I had help in the gate, then let my arm fall from my shoulder. This was an old Hebrew expression to say that your arm fell off would be that your means of working and gaining income and providing for yourself. May all of my provision and ability to provide for myself be taken away if I have robbed someone else of their ability to be provided for. Um, Let my arm be torn from the socket, for destruction from God is a terror to me, and because of his magnificence, I cannot endure. Um, So he says here, 16 through 23, I've cared for the poor and for widows and for orphans. Uh, This is something that in the book of James, he describes as true religion, as caring for widows and orphans and keeping yourself um, from being stained by the world. And so here, Job is attesting to these kind of New Testament ideas from even that far back in history. Uh, Verse 24 through 28. If I have made gold my hope, Or said to find gold, you are my confidence. If I have rejoiced because my wealth was great and because my hand had gained much, if I have observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness so that my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity deserving of judgment. For I would have denied God who is above. So here in verse 26 and 27 is a reference to common religions of his day. So in his day, there was uh, polytheism versus monotheism. They believed in many gods. They believed the sun was a god and the moon was a god. And so when he says, if I have observed the sun when it shines or the moon moving in brightness, so it's not simply if I've noticed them, right? Not that kind of observation, but looked at them so that my heart has been secretly enticed. And he says, and my mouth has kissed my hand. It was sort of like, you know, offering a kiss to the moon or the sun. That was their practice. It's kind of like we would blow a kiss to someone we love. They would do it to the sun or to the moon. And that would be their practice of that day. And he's saying, even if I've done that, right, that would be iniquity deserving of judgment for I would have denied God who is above. So here he's saying, I haven't been greedy or idolatrous. So here again from the Sermon on the Mount, here on your screen, Matthew 6, 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So here God is both talking about the love of money, um, being something that's very enticing for all human beings um, to guard yourself against, but also idolatry in general. Um, that I am the Lord your God, you shall worship none other, right? And so here, Job is kind of pointing that out as well. And then we have 29 through 40, and we're going to see how this relates to Matthew 5, 44. If I have rejoiced at the destruction of him who hated me, or lifted myself up when evil found him, indeed, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for a curse on his soul. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been satisfied with his meat? But no sojourner had to lodge in the street, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. That's hospitality. If I have covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom, he's talking about Adam putting on coverings and them hiding from the Lord. 
Because I feared the great multitude and dreaded the contempt of families, so that I kept silence and did not go out of the door. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had written a book. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land cries out against me and its furrows weep together, if I have eaten its fruit without money or caused its owner to lose their lives, then let thistles grow instead of wheat and weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. <clears throat> Here Job is asserting, I have not hated my enemies, and I've been hospitable, and I have no secret sin. Matthew 5.44, Jesus says, But I say to you, so before this Jesus was talking about, uh, you've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Well, the law did say to love your neighbors. This phrase, hate your enemies, came later. People added it. It's not what God said. God wouldn't say that. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And I have that ellipsis there because that is the end of the verse, but it's not the end of the sentence. I haven't pulled this out of context and tried to distort it to make my point. Um, But I just want you to be aware of that. There is an ellipsis there because the sentence isn't over, but the verse is. Um, So here, Job has, has lived up to this. He says he hasn't rejoiced at the destruction of the one who hated him. Um, or lifted myself up when evil found him. So he hasn't celebrated, he hasn't mistreated his enemies uh, in that way, which is an attribute of, of what God has said. Um, he was hospitable. He says, no sojourner, like someone traveling through, had to lodge in the street, for I have opened my doors to the traveler. I've been hospitable, as God said. And then at the very end, we see more of that kind of law language, that court language. Uh, 35 and on. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me, that my prosecutor had had written a book. So the book there, written the book, would be like a legal document stating your case before you. And he says, surely I would carry it on my shoulder and bind it on me like a crown, because it would be so short, because there is nothing against me, and I could wear it confidently knowing, because I know that I'm innocent. This is how confident Job is at his innocence, which is valid, but not humble. Validity without humility. Um, And it's going to be addressed later. And so this ends the argument. Job has finished. The words of Job are ended. Um, Next time, we will jump into chapter 32 Uh, and get into Elihu, which is this very interesting young man who comes along, and he kind of stands in the middle of the arguments and finds the gaps in both sides. And so he's going to accuse the friends. You've accused Job without any evidence. You can't do that. That's wrong. And y'all are wrong about many of the things you're saying. And y'all haven't been successful in arguing against Job. And Job, you know, you're wrong because... You're, being, you're not fighting for God. You're not defending God. You're only defending yourself. This is all about you. And so we're gonna, we'll get more into that later. Um, Elihu is an interesting character, so we'll, we'll talk about that next time. So, like I, I always like to do, what is our response? We've read the word. 
We don't just want to read it, be done, and get out of here. We want to respond to it in some kind of way. So what is our response? Trust in God's faithfulness and justice. And that will help if you are humble as well, to trust that God is doing something, even whenever you face terrible grief and and terrible adversity in life. We can trust that he's faithful and he's just. Uh, Walk in or put on humility. Um, I wish I had found it. I should have put it up, but um, there's this really great passage where uh, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, it says that he girded a towel or girded his robe. It uses that word girded around. And later Paul, or actually I think it's Peter. Yeah, Peter talks about girding ourselves with humility. And it's that picture he's trying to draw from Jesus doing that. He uses that exact same word in that picture. So it's an actual physical thing that Jesus did, but it's a spiritual picture for us of how to live our lives. Christ was so humble that he washed the feet of his own disciples. And we should have the same humility um, as Christians, as leaders, as fathers, wives, you know, um, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, uh, to be able, in, in whatever circumstance you're in, to be able to put on that same kind of humility that Jesus had. And then remember, Jesus did not just come to give us a list of commandments or set an example. Uh, he came like a good shepherd to seek and save the lost. And in his, in his humility, as the Lamb of God, to take away the sins of the world. Um, Jesus isn't just someone who gave commands um, or lived a life for us to, you know, oh, that's a good example. I, I could pick up on some of his habits. <laughs> but God came as the one and only Savior, the only one who could do it uh, for us. And he is the only one by which we can have relationship with God. And if you don't put your trust in him, you can't ever have that. Um, And Jesus' offering is incredible because he's done absolutely everything. Um, He's done absolutely everything. And all we have to do is put our trust in him. And so if you haven't done that, do that. (laughs) Do that today. Don't wait. Everlasting life can start now. um, And it will continue forever. And so uh, that's what Christ calls us to, to repent Humbly come before him, repentant of our sins, turn from them, trust in him for salvation, and follow after him with all that we have. Um, Let's pray. Thank mm-hmm. you.